Myanmar's military junta has cut off internet access across the country amid growing protests against this week's coup. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how the news is reported. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Myanmar. The headline is straightforward. There's been a military coup. The backstory, the politics, the media, and the censorship is where it gets complicated. Australia is now a front line in the revenue battle between big tech and the mainstream media. Homeschool is hard enough. But what if you can't afford an electronic device or Wi-Fi? That is the reality for more than a million school children in the UK. And why be singing the lockdown blues when you can be tapping your toes to broadcast news? It's been almost three weeks now since the military in Myanmar staged a coup against the democratically elected government. The army is alleging that the recent landslide victory by Aung San Suu Kyi and her political party was a fraud. The new regime says it wants to establish a disciplined democracy. Journalists there understand what that means. They remember the almost 50 years of military rule that ended in 2011, when blanket censorship was the norm. International and private domestic TV channels are now off the air. There have been rolling internet blackouts. Many reporters and activists have been forced into hiding, fearful that the night raids conducted by security forces will soon be coming for them. However, a lot has changed in Myanmar since 2011. A civil disobedience movement, powered by young people who came of age in the internet era, is using social media to organize and keep citizens and the outside world informed. This junta is being outgunned online, but elsewhere in the real world, the military is well armed for this fight. Our starting point this week is the city at the center of the resistance, Yangon. Every day the fear is that this might be the last day that we could do our job. Many of my former colleagues have not slept at their home since the coup. There's a lot of young journalists risking their lives try and get news of what's happening in Myanmar out to us now. We would see these videos and hear these pots and pans being drummed really loudly. And in the Myanmar tradition, you do that to um, scare away the evil. And, you know, we know who that is. She's talking about the junta, Myanmar's new military regime. Those two words, junta and regime, are now banned from being broadcast or published in the country. The new military authorities are picking up where the last regime left off in 2011, when it surrendered just some of its powers to civilians. They're out to control the information flow. There have been some 500 arrests, journalists included, the bulk of them during police raids at night, a tactic used by the old regime. So if you're a reporter or just have an opinion on social media, sleep doesn't come easy. 
A new cybersecurity law is in the works to police dissent online when citizens can get online in between the rolling internet blackouts that come at the flick of a switch. There's definitely a move by the military in order to criminalize all dissent, whether that is people in the streets, people who are participating in the civil disobedience movement, or the media. A really good example of how the military sees its relationship with the public is the fact that there is a department in the military called the Directorate of Public Relations and Psychological Warfare. It's always worth remembering that it was only a decade or so ago that the military was handing sort of 27 year sentences to young independent journalists. It has a very recent history of severe punishment of anyone seen to be scrutinizing and publicizing its abuses. And I think there is a real threat now that Myanmar is moving back towards the era when any form of opposition was seen as criminal. If you were watching the state-run channels right now, like MRTV and Nyawadi, you'd be seeing a lot of military propaganda and probably no protests at all. Everything would be wonderful and everyone would be super pleased that a military basically seized power of um, an elected government. They're grasping at straws because they're not just targeting journalists anymore, they're actually trying to target the whole population who they know are rebelling, essentially. Since 2011 and the return to civilian rule in Myanmar, the military has remained uncomfortably close to power, pulling the strings from behind the scenes on policies like the persecution of Rohingya Muslims. Prior to that, the army had ruled the country on its own for almost half a century. Dissent was not tolerated. Censorship was a fact of life. But the junta's authoritarian playbook is in need of an update. The country and its people have changed. Myanmar is now connected and the new generation is so much more savvier when it comes to using social media and technology. They understand the importance of memes, a good slogan, and even, you know, the use of this three-finger salute from the Hunger Games. A lot of that, you know, organizing was done on social media. And that's critical because the military, what they want is the world to forget about Myanmar. It's a tiny nation, just ignore us. What the young people are trying to do is to make that job really difficult by keeping Myanmar in the news. They're coming out to protest this as, you know, effectively a Gen Z-driven um, civil disobedience movement. They've grown up in pretty much regime conditions, only to then have this beautiful taste of freedom where they have access to international news, information. And I do understand some other people's fears that perhaps they're a bit naive and, and once the shooting starts, you know, then they'll see how absolutely draconian this regime could be. But what other choice do they have? You know, this is their future. They don't want anyone to take it away from them. For millions of people in Myanmar, Facebook is the internet. It's that dominant a platform. 
In 2012 and 2013, the company started getting complaints that it was being used to spread hate, pitting the majority Buddhist community against the Rohingya Muslim minority. Facebook was scandalously slow to intervene. Hundreds of thousands were forced out of Myanmar in what the UN described as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Eventually, the platform picked up its game. By 2018, it had banned the army's commander-in-chief, General Mei Un Le, for allegedly enabling or committing serious human rights abuses. It also banned the army-owned Miawadi TV channel. That same general now leads the junta. Facebook continues to ban him. And since the coup, the platform says it has cut distribution from all military accounts for spreading misinformation. The military has never liked um, independent-minded media or journalists. They also have a history of hiring people um, who spread disinformation. They've been gaslighting the whole nation for decades. And we can expect that they're going to use all sorts of these tactics, intimidation, harassment, lawsuits, you know, and, and put pressure on the media. The military's ability to communicate with the public is complicated by the fact that they're essentially banned off of Facebook. It comes at a time when people are not really reading newspapers as much. Not everyone necessarily owns a television. And it's quite likely that a number of people are going to boycott state-controlled media. I think that's an especially pertinent thing, considering that having a monopoly on uh, information is really what gave the military a lot of control in the past, in addition to their weapons. The fact is, the military hasn't always needed a monopoly. During the last five years of Myanmar's limited form of democracy, both journalists and the elected leader they were covering, Aung San Suu Kyi, came up short. When the military was expelling or killing all those Rohingyas, Suu Kyi, who made her name campaigning for democracy and human rights, went along with it. Too many news outlets did too, ignoring the UN and other international critics. Now, many of the journalists who worked for them, who were either afraid or unwilling to call the Rohingya story what it was, are turning to the outside world, asking for help. There is absolutely fear over reporting that could be seen as sympathetic to the Rohingya, um, or that goes against the official narrative. It's a real fear, but journalists are also made up of part of society. And Myanmar society for many decades have been fed this propaganda um, that the Rohingya are illegal immigrants from across the border. People like to say, oh, you know, I, I don't believe in what the government say because, you know, it's propaganda. But, you know, it, it works. Decades of propaganda, I think it, it works subconsciously. There were lots of journalists who were appalled by the military's violence against the Rohingya. Um, there are, of course, others who um, sort of tacitly supported it. But there needs to be deeper work done after these protests settle. And, you know, if the military does eventually um, cede some power back to the civilian government to interrogate what democracy means. Not all democracies are born equal. They come in different forms and exist to different degrees. 
Now, with Aung San Suu Kyi locked up and the media effectively silenced, even the trappings of Myanmar's democracy are gone. The younger generation refuses to accept that. To them, democracy did not fail. It faltered, and the generals never really left. That's their narrative, and they're sticking to it on the streets. Turning to Australia now, where the government has proposed legislation that would force big tech companies to pay news organizations for their content. Google, which had threatened to pull out of the country, has now cut a deal with media companies there, including Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Facebook is another story. Nick Muirhead has been on this. Nick, distinctly different approaches then between Facebook and Google. How would you characterize them? So Google made a preemptive strike by negotiating a deal before the law has passed. So essentially that deal will determine how much ad revenue is shared between Google and Australian news outlets, not the law. Facebook's gone the other way. It has now banned the sharing of news content produced by Australian news outlets on its platform, which is the most far-reaching restriction it has put on any publisher anywhere in the world. Facebook is saying that Australia's proposed legislation fundamentally misunderstands its relationship with publishers because it says news organizations voluntarily post their content on its platform. And their argument, therefore, is why should we be forced to pay for that? Right, but uh, the real question is how voluntary is it? Facebook dominates the market there. Australians spend about 18% of their time online on Facebook, which is second only to Google, which comes in at around 20%. And that's just time online. Look at how much time Australians spend on social media and 70% of the time it's on Facebook. So in other words, news organizations simply cannot afford not to be on Facebook. So it's not really a choice for them, which is why the precedent in this story is so important. And it has ramifications not just for the Australian media, but for news organizations around the globe. And even now we're seeing reports that the EU is considering similar legislation. Still early days on that side of the story. But what about the implications of this for Australians? Facebook is taking down news content, which has been verified, while leaving this other material up there? Well, the primary concern is content exposure. We all know that news organizations spend a lot of time verifying information, fact-checking before they publish, before posting on Facebook. Take that content away and what are Australians left with when they go on Facebook? We all know how damaging fake news, propaganda, misinformation can be, and we all know how much time Australians spend on Facebook. So it's a volatile combination. Okay, thanks, Nick. Of all the countries in Europe, the UK has been amongst the hardest hit by COVID-19. It's well into its third lockdown now. Schools have closed again, and teachers are racking their brains for ways to keep students learning. The majority of teaching has moved online, exposing and exacerbating social inequalities in Great Britain. It comes down to money and technology. Not everybody can afford the electronic devices and the Wi-Fi packages they need to learn online. Estimates have more than a million children being left behind. Efforts are underway. Laptop donation campaigns, free data packages, and the nation's public broadcaster has stepped up, but the gap remains. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on fears of a lost generation and Britain's digital divide. January 3rd, 2021. Christmas holidays are drawing to a close and the number of coronavirus cases in the United Kingdom are skyrocketing. The Prime Minister reiterates his government's commitment to reopening the country's schools. Schools are safe. 
very, very important to stress that. The next day, January 4th, despite growing criticism, Boris Johnson doubles down on his school's directive. I, I think it's, it's wrong to say that schools are unsafe. Schools are, are safe. That was at noon. Eight hours later, after just one day back at school, the government changes the rules again. Primary schools, secondary schools and colleges across England must move to remote permit provision from tomorrow. Given the government's track record during this pandemic, few teachers had taken the Prime Minister at his word. It was inevitable that at some point schools would close, even if it was just a bubble or just a class. And so we put a lot of effort into thinking about how we would convert our in-school offer into an online offer. What the teachers do now is they teach a maths or an English lesson around nine o'clock. They teach a second one at 11 o'clock. And then at three o'clock, there's a third opportunity to meet together with all of the children in their class. Which is good news for the kids who can log on. But what about the ones who can't? Up to 1.8 million children in the UK don't have access to a laptop or tablet at home. Around 900,000 live in households with only a mobile internet connection, leaving them reliant on expensive data packages at a time when many families are struggling to buy food. Victims of what's become known as the country's digital divide. The digital divide, the, the lack of, of online um, capabilities of a lot of households has been particularly stark. Um, but inequalities in schooling have, have also been highlighted. So a lot of schools have got fantastic online offerings, but some schools haven't, or they're, they're really conscious that a large proportion of their pupils haven't got access to online. And so they've been going to heroic efforts, putting together um, worksheets and you know, driving them around and dropping them off at children's homes. We all had to take turns and we didn't have much, we only had the computer. My brother got to use the computer the most because he was in secondary school. I would just avoid all work in general, like I wouldn't do anything because it's kind of like all the work that's like piled on top of each other, it just seems so much like more on like a smaller screen. When I was sharing with my sister, would have to do it in turns because we only had one computer. Even if the internet just got like touched a tiny bit or like nudged, it would just it would suddenly just turn off and all the work that people were doing or in the middle of and haven't sent it would just be gone. Many families on lower incomes who may have three or four children we often find that parents and children are sharing a single device in order to do work from home and also schoolwork. Very recently, we had a referral from a child who was 15, who's doing his GCSEs, who said, I've got three siblings. We're all trying to do schoolwork on a single device. I'm really frightened that I'm going to fail my exams. The stakes are high. One think tank puts the cost of lost schooling to children at £350 billion. Research by the Education Endowment Foundation estimates that, as a result of school closures, the disparities in educational achievement between UK children of different backgrounds could widen by up to a whopping 75%.
The pandemic is widening the learning gap for the poor disadvantaged children. They have poor housing, their parents had to work, for instance, or they lost their occupations or jobs. On the other hand, rich families have not only had remote teaching and with all facilities for their children, they have the skills, time, and also they have the money to hire private tutoring for their children. But we've seen some really significant patterns around groups of children who experience increased adversity. Children from Black, Asian and other minority ethnic communities where English may not be a first language spoken by parents. So supporting children with online digital support and learning is really difficult in itself. Equally, those families through structural inequalities and, and, and racism and discrimination are less likely to have access to the same levels of technology as, as potentially white British peers. When schools closed for the second time, an opposition MP wrote a letter urging the Johnson government to get every child online. The UK's Department of Education has scrambled to distribute one million laptops to schoolchildren and has given out more than half a million 4G routers to low-income families. Oh my goodness, As the public broadcaster, the BBC has stepped in too, setting up a pledge drive across local radio stations for used laptop and tablet donations, as well as securing data usage deals for its content with BT, a major internet provider. Education has always been at the centre of the BBC's motto, inform, educate and entertain. So to further bridge the gap, the broadcaster has taken another step, one that is technologically backward, but democratically progressive. With learning for every child of every age group, every day of the week, online, on iPlayer and now on TV. Bite Size, as the BBC's educational offering is known, has been the online hit of the pandemic. But for this latest lockdown, in recognition of those children not able to log on, the BBC has repurposed its digital material for television, where more kids can access it. When I was young, school's programming, I used to think, was really, really dull. And the, the content that the BBC have created this time really isn't like that. An adjective is a describing word. We use it to describe what we've seen and heard. So you're getting maths, you're getting science, you're getting English content. And it's making learning fun. They've got bits from ordinary teachers. And they've got this celebrity supply teacher, which I think is my favourite little slot on there. Hi guys, I'm Marcus Rashford. I play for Manchester United Football Club. Today I am your celebrity supply teacher. The BBC could offer something brilliant, but it doesn't know our children in the way that our teachers know our children. I mean, it's probably fun to do PE with Marcus Rashford, but to see Coach, who you know from school, who does playground duty and PE sessions with you twice a week, and see him jumping around in his front room in the same way you're jumping around in your front room, you know, offers a child a well-being and a sense that we're all in this together and we will be back again together soon. It doesn't end with getting kids back to school. Teachers have just as much to worry about with the fallout. 
The government's failure to test and trace coronavirus cases has contributed to more than 100,000 deaths. Improving that procedure in another context, testing and tracing individual pupils potentially left behind, could be a way to prevent a lost lockdown generation. What they should do now is to trace those children who lost much learning, and they need to look uh, and provide them internet as fast as possible. This is in short term, but in longer term, government should invest in this digital device. And finally, a little less than a year ago at this time, we were reeling off the viewing figures. Ratings for news programs in India up by more than 50%. In the UK, a reported 64% of Britons were watching more live TV, including news, than they did pre-lockdown. So what do you get when you mix cabin fever with constant exposure to 24-hour news channels? Well, one answer is interpretive dance routines to the theme tunes of news bulletins. A dance trio, Katie Wong, Tao Therese Nguyen, and Amy Lester, have taken the music tracks from British news channels and made them their own. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.